Welcome to Christianity and Classical Culture on the Fleming Foundation. My guest, as always, for these podcasts is Dr. Thomas Fleming. Dr. Fleming, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure, as always. And I suppose there's no better day to discuss possible tyrants than on April 15th in the United States, is there? No, not at all. Uh, this is, uh, <laughs> I, I, as usual, am late in filing my taxes, uh, a custom I've maintained for about 30 years. <laughs> well, um, uh, Dr. Fleming's practice is not the best revenge, but rather Christianity and classical culture today. So we are going to be discussing Sophocles, and Dr. Fleming graciously agreed to discuss this. It's, uh, it's something I've, I've been reading some of his plays uh, recently rereading them, and I, I thought it would might it might furnish as a good discussion topic because there's so many great themes that these plays touch on that that uh, reinforce and and expand some of the themes that we've been speaking about in previous Christianity and classical culture podcasts. So I want to start, Doctor Fleming, by by the staging of these plays. When I think when we uh, in America or in, or in England think about a night out at the theater, we think about dinner, we get dressed up, we go someplace uh, enclosed, and we have stage props and, and lots of um, guidance that, that in, a, in a way it, it gives rise to the film. But what the Athenians experienced was something quite different. And can you, can you set the, as it were, set the stage for us? Sure. The... Um... There are several aspects of uh, Greek uh, Athenian uh, dramatic production that really uh, tell us a lot about the Greek character, the Greek mind, and uh, and Athens itself. In the first place, the, the it is a religious production. There is a liturgical quality to Greek tragedy, which is absent from everything except uh, medieval mystery plays. That is, it's, it's, the tragedies are performed at the Festival of Dionysus, and, and the theater is, of course, uh, connected with the cult of Dionysus, the worship of Dionysus, who was the god of, uh, of, of uh, wine and, uh, and of revelry, but it, it goes deeper because the, the Dionysian spirit is, a, is a sort of odd for the Greeks because it's, 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 uh, it's, a, mo- it's, it's a feeling of abandonment. You, you, you can let yourself go. Uh, it was <clears throat> the Greater Dionysia had these uh, dramatic contests which uh, went, went on from morning till night. And um, the, there were only uh, a limited number of competitors. You had to uh, apply to the, uh, to the Archon for to be granted a chorus because the heart of these plays is really in historically the chorus not 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 the actors the actors were introduced probably near the end of the 6th century to explain and interpret what the chorus was singing that's why the greek word for actor hypokrites mean doesn't it, it means something like the interpreter or the answerer so you have first one, then two actors uh, in Aeschylus, and Sophocles introduces the third actor. So all, all these parts are, are, are played by people running on and off stage, changing their rather simple costumes. 
they of course wore uh, very formal costumes. They had uh, they, with a with a with a mask. Partly, the mask is partly ritual uh, because they are taking on a a new persona. You know, uh, the a Latin word for 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 this, and um, uh, they're 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 not themselves. In other words, the actors <clears throat> and the choral singers are not. In Sophocles' day, they're not really professionals. They're talented amateurs, like people who sing at a good church choir. A uh, lot of the money is not, most of the money for the production is not supplied by the government or in hope of making a dollar, they are, or a dinar. The money comes from uh, rich people. Rich people were assigned duties known as liturgies, and you could, uh, one liturgy, for example, would be to outfit a warship. Another liturgy would be to, uh, to put on a set of tragedies. So if you, if you were a lucky one, if you were Aeschylus or Sophocles or Euripides, or, you were granted the right to put on three tragedies and one satyr play, which is sort of a Three Stooges production to give a little relief at the end of uh, the three tragedies. So the, the, the whole, the whole, so a series of days are spent, you know, the whole day in this religious uh, ceremony of putting on the play. We can later on remind me to talk about this because in the heart of, of Sophocles' Oedipus, uh, the chorus refers to the fact that they are in a religious celebration and that religion is the heart of this play. But another typically Greek thing is, of course, they're a very competitive people. They, uh, you know, there's, there's in uh, most uh, Greek competitions, you win or lose. There's, there, there's no honorable mention, no, uh, no silver medal. And uh, that's a little, you, in these tragedies, the tragic competitions, of course, there's a winner, but we know, we know who would come in second or third, but uh, what really counts is uh, who wins. Aeschylus, of course, won almost every time he competed. There is a story that defeated by Sophocles, he moped and went to Sicily. That's probably not a, uh, a true story. But there was a relatively small number of people at any point trying to compete uh, for this. We, of course, we, <clears throat> we know who the three most famous playwrights are, uh, Aeschylus, Sophocles, Euripides. There were, there were others who did put on plays uh, year after year. Uh, one of them was uh, from the island of Chios, Ion, who was actually a good friend of Sophocles, and we, we, have, we hear about good things about him. So nothing, nothing in the production of a Greek tragedy, in how, how it was written, was never written for money, the, the writer never expected to get a dime out of it. It was put, put on once, once only, and not repeated until... Uh, after Aeschylus' death, there was uh, permission given to his family uh, to, to uh, put on post, post-productions, but that was, a, that was an innovation. So the expectation is a man may spend six months writing a play. It's going to be produced once. People are going to listen to it. And, of course, it's a song and dance production, much of it. Aeschylus is about 40% singing and dancing. Sophocles is more like you know, 25 30%, but a very important part. So it's more like a light opera. And uh, the staging is quite primitive. There's no, uh, 
uh, American audiences who expect special effects from their movies and can't watch uh, the Maltese Falcon because you know there there's not enough exploding bodies uh, would be uh, rather rather disappointed in the st- in the stagecraft. So what we're dealing with is again something more like a religious liturgy that is taking up the most serious and important questions that uh, in human life and in Athenian life. And it's, it's, while wonderfully entertaining, we're also dealing with perhaps the most serious literary productions that have ever been composed. And uh, you say it, it was put on once. Uh, do we have evidence of the fact that, let's say, speeches or parts of the, the play were reproduced uh, for, let's say, private use or friends of, of Sophocles to, to be able to, to read outside of that one performance? You know, if you watch Fox News or something, they'll say, that's a great question, Stephen. And it is a question which I've actually devoted most of my academic life to, uh, which is uh, the question of uh, what, how did knowledge of these plays, how was it transmitted, knowledge of the music in particular. We, the, the best evidence we have, we know the family held on to texts, we and eventually, and we know that texts seem to have been collected uh, by the archon who uh, to whom you submitted the text probably kept it. There's probably a library, and we know that in the uh, very early fourth century that um, they made an official manuscript so that when they started doing second productions of classic plays that the actors would not be allowed to rewrite their parts, as happened, for example, with Shakespeare. A lot of 18th century productions of, of Shakespeare are, are, are rather crazily rewritten. So uh, we know that. What we also know is um, the Greeks had tremendous memories. They didn't like to read with their eyes much. They, heard their, they got their literature mostly... By having by being read to, so you, if you were rich, you had a slave who would read to you, or you would have a friend. But they 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 preferred to memorize and to hear. Now uh, this meant that they could remember having heard something like this once. Many of them could remember it for a long time. Uh, we are told, and there's some people have cast out on it, but we are told that. When um, the Athenians invaded uh, Sicily and attacked Syracuse, and it came to a very bad end, and they were being slaughtered by the Syracusans uh, at the at the end of this campaign, that a group of them, a group of Athenians, got together and recited, uh, presumably sang, an, uh, a section on mercy from a pl- uh, the, the play they had heard of Euripides before sailing to Syracuse. Now, I mean, <laughs> I mean that, 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 that it's, it's an incredible story, but it would seem to be true. Look at, um, if you look at the, the plays of Aristophanes, which are comedies, uh, there will always, always be a, a party going on, say, boy, sing me that song of Simonides, would you? Sing me one of the good old songs. In the frogs, in the frogs, they have a contest in hell, in the underworld, between Aeschylus and Euripides, reciting, you know, and doing versions and pastiches of famous passages of theirs. Now, presumably, the audience is supposed to remember this and get the joke. And some of it's quite, uh, 
you know, quite detailed. So if it's, you, you have to be able to see where, uh, where the comic poet is rewriting a line to get a laugh for it. And Aristophanes is constantly making gags on the basis of the plays of Euripides. So, to, let me be less long-winded. The, the, we know that they, that they saw that everybody who was anybody went to see these plays. They're, they're not like just a, a particular taste. Everybody went to them. That is, all the men. There's a debate as to whether women were allowed. All, all the, all the middle, men of all social classes went. They remembered a great deal of it. Uh, manuscripts were kept in the family, probably did circulate. We know that Euripides was a reader. He's ridiculed for this by uh, Aristophanes. He, he calls up Euripides, Euripides, and he comes out pale-faced and strange because he's sitting in his library reading, which is not something that ordinarily uh, an Athenian did. They spent their life on the street. They didn't, they didn't stay indoors. So yeah, the these the, the the texts of these things are were widely known at the time. They were collected later, and of course the manuscript was stolen and went to the Alexandrian Library, the of uh, the the hundred and hundred plus plays of Aeschylus and Sophocles and Euripides and, and and others, and from there copies were made, and a selection, especially a three play selection was used in uh, in for for, uh, for schools to teach to teach the boys down to the end of the Byzantine empire down to the 15th century greek schoolboys were studying the oedipus well and i suppose when they're studying it dr Fleming, they also have this different experience again i i reference the 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 experience that americans or the english have when they they go to see plays this could be an adaptation of, of a novel, of a story, um, a variation on an opera. But the Greeks weren't doing this. The Greeks were pulling from a common oral history. Everybody knew who these characters were. And obviously, as you say, tied together with a religious ceremony, this, this makes the watching of a play completely different. It, everyone knew the source material. That's right. All the, uh, you know, there, there's the line that they that Aeschylus and Sophocles were picking up uh, crumbs from uh, Homer's banquet. And, of course, they, they take little parts of the tradition, but they're completely free to reinvent the character of the, of the, uh, the, the, the personality of the characters. They change events. They give different motives. But the backdrop, you, you are supposed to, you know the story of the Trojan War, you know the story, stories about Hercules, you know the stories of Oedipus and his family, and no matter even, and stories which are, seem to us fairly obscure, like the story of Antiope or something, they, uh, it's, it's part of their common tradition. It would be like growing up Baptist a hundred years ago, the, uh, uh, they knew an amazing amount of stories from the Old Testament, and, and it's a lot like that. You don't have to be educated or book-learned. You just know this stuff from, from, from learning it and hearing it your whole childhood. You mentioned Sophocles, obviously, as in some of our other podcasts, as someone who was not just a playwright. And again, uh, we in another uh, podcast we talked about poetry and the the, uh, the 
the pseudo intellectual hippie, you know, who's smoking a cigarette. I mean, obviously this was not Sophocles, but can you give us a bit more background on this, on this man? Yes, Sophocles came from uh, a wealthy aristocratic family, not perhaps so distinguished a family as Aeschylus, who came from the very top of the uh, of the uh, uh, ancient aristocracy, but a very a very fine family. He was involved in political life. We know that he served at, on the board of generals and in and the campaign against uh, Samos, along with Pericles. Although Pericles apparently seems to have acted as if he were solely in command, uh, and you know he had, of course. A business and estates to manage, but he led a thoroughly three-dimensional uh, life of an Athenian gentleman, sort of like an English country gentleman in the 18th century. He uh, had, uh, he was very, we know he was very convivial. He liked to party. Uh, there, there are lots of famous anecdotes, and some of those anecdotes go back to a book of memoirs uh, written by his friend Ion, from the island of Chios, also a poet and a playwright. We know that he was, uh, his association seemed to put him on the conservative side of the political spectrum. He does not seem to have got along with Pericles, did not seem to like him, although, you know, Athens is different from America, where because in Athens all these families are intermarried, everybody knows each other, and even though you may be on the opposite side, that doesn't mean you can't, you can't go to a dinner party uh, with the person and, and uh, remain friends, as, for example, Cicero and Caesar in Rome, who hated each other's guts, but they, would still, uh, they could still spend an enjoyable evening chatting about literature. He does seem to have been a friend of Cimon, the uh, what you might call the conservative general and political leader who was displaced by uh, Pericles, and that may be part of the resentment of Pericles. There is a, a former colleague of mine, I uh, wrote a couple of articles once, and, uh, his name is Robert Kane, and I think he was uh, on, on this play, and I think one thing he uh, was he suggests maybe not too strongly but which i am convinced of is that in oedipus we see a portrait of people like pericles that is pericles was well born he uh, his uh, his mother was uh, from the alcmeonid clan which was a dominant family in athenian life for hundreds of years his father was uh, was a uh, also a wealthy uh, aristocrat who had served in war and in politics. Pericles was uh, a kind of bright young man. He he read books. He hung out with intellectuals. His uh, the, the philosopher Anaxagoras was one of his advisors, and he basically was one of those wise guys who thinks he is liberated from the bonds of convention. You know, he doesn't have to worry about tradition and all those silly old things like religion. And um, there's a famous story that uh, uh, Anaxagoras once proved that a, that a goat with a malformation in the head was, was it was not, a, not some kind of mysterious thing that, that, that would, was predicting problem, division in Athens and civil war. It was just a natural phenomenon. And, of course, later on when such a war did break out between Pericles and Cimon, uh, the people began to go wonder maybe Anaxagoras wasn't so right after all. So my, my point is that the child, 
Oedipus, the child of fortune, the man who rules the state in an unconventional way, uh, and who puts all his faith in his own knowledge and seems to despise religion. If, 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 I'm not saying necessarily it's, a, it's an attack on Pericles, but people like Pericles are what, what must have been on Sophocles' mind. By the way, the word tyrannos in Greek, tyrant, in the, in the, in the title, a tyrant is not necessarily somebody who misbehaves. A tyrant can be a, he comes to power because he is popular, and then it's usually in an emergency, and he has emergency powers that allow him to ignore the traditional constitution and customs of his people. I mean, Lincoln was certainly a tyrant in this sense. I believe he's a tyrant also in the, in the other sense. But a tyrant, the word does not, in Sophocles' time, the word is not a term of abuse. Because mo- most of the famous Greek tyrants, even if they went a little overboard in, later on in their career, the point is they had massive popular support. And uh, of Pericles, Thucydides says, remember, that uh, they called it democracy, but it was really the government of one man. And the government of one man in, a, in a, what is supposed to be a republic, when one man assumes all the power, he is a tyrant. You mentioned there's, there's a lot there. You mentioned that uh, there was a, a man named Ion who you heard of, uh, but we don't necessarily have plays of all of the Greek playwrights. Uh, these were written 24, 2,500 years ago, and only a few have made it down to us. So it's quite easy for someone to say, I've read all of Sophocles, but what they really mean is they've read all the Sophocles plays we have, which, which are right. how many in comparison to how many he wrote. We have seven plays, and uh, I don't know off the top of my head how many are in the list. It's about, I'd say, between 105 and 110, and uh, similarly, uh, Aeschylus. So he wrote uh, a great uh, great many plays. There is no reason to believe that we have his seven best plays, because you could, you picked, especially when you were picking plays, for the purpose of uh, of schooling, you you know you 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 pick them for reasons. For example, silly high school teachers like to teach Romeo and Juliet because, gee, teenagers are interested in other teenagers. You know, if I had to pick one play, I might not give uh, to teenagers. It would be Romeo and Juliet. Teenagers are self-dramatizing enough, but to have two kids defying their families, running off, getting married. And, uh, and then committing suicide, ah, that's not really a wholesome uh, a work to give. But similarly, uh, I, my, my own, my own uh, dissertation professor, Douglas Young, used to say that he hated Sophocles' Philoctetes, which I think is a very deep and profound play. And I said, why? And he said, because I, oh, we always had to read it. I said, well, why did you always have to read the Philoctetes? Because, you know, he started learning Greek when he was seven or eight. And he said, because there's no sex in it. I said, sex? Well, you know, there's, there is some story. There is, there, the Greek tragedy doesn't have sex in our sense, but it refers to sexual liaisons. You know, Oedipus marrying his mother. Well, you don't want to talk about that with a 10-year-old boy. 
well, you know, so you go through play after play, and there's, and there's some uh, erotic aspect because it's a deep part of human life. So for that reason, he, got, he had to read the Philoctiti. So a lot of these plays are picked for, uh, for, other, for extraneous purposes. So the Oedip- we know that Aristotle thought the Oedipus was a, a virtually perfect play. So in this case, we know we are getting as good a Greek play as can be written. Well, why don't we get into that? Obviously, we, we have three plays in this cycle about Thebes. We're going to just focus on one today, and probably the most well-known one, the one that may have been read in high school by those who are still reading in high school these days, and that's Oedipus the King or Oedipus Rex. And as I was rereading this, Dr. Fleming, I, I couldn't help thinking that obviously these sorts of plays, especially by Sophocles, are going to promote Athens. You're, you're there for this religious ceremony, as you say. It's going to be an all-day thing. You're, you're not going to want to do anything other than praise Athens and, and its own virtues. But I think I see echoes of, let's say, America over the last 30 to 50 years in, this, in, in some of the themes of Oedipus, whether it's the fact that he is, he is defined as a man of action, uh, that he can preemptively alienate his allies. He, he's willing to, to possibly torture somebody to get what he wants. Um, how are these, how are these reflective of Athens? Am I being unfair by attributing some of these, uh, some of these characteristics to America of the last 50 years? Well, no, it's certainly, uh, it's certainly, uh, extremely true of the, uh, the United States in, in recent decades. Athens at this time of its history, I mean, the play is written, you know, I don't know, produced what, 431? I, I'm, I'm terrible on dates. But uh, Athens had now, was now engaged simultaneously in a project to build an empire, that is, to turn the Delian League, which was a religiously bound confederation of island states with Athens, in order to clean the Mediter- East Mediterranean, the Aegean Sea, of Persian influence, because they had... You know, in 480, they had defeated the Persians at uh, at Salamis and um, and Plataea, and there were there uh, the Athenians and their allies began moving across the Eastern Mediterranean all the way to the coast of Turkey, one by one, liberating Greek cities and islands which had been subjugated by the Persians. At some point. <clears throat> Uh, uh, Athenian policy changed. Cimon, uh, who I regard as the great man of this era, Cimon, his father, Miltiades, had had been in charge at the Battle of of, uh, Marathon. Cimon, his son, was a distinguished warrior uh, ten years later in the in the conflicts at uh, at both uh, both Salamis and Plataea. And Cimon's view was uh, they should maintain an alliance with Sparta against Persia. However, uh, more ambitious people like Pericles wanted to ditch, ditch the Spartans and go ahead and create their own empire. And if this meant making friends with Persia, so be it. And this is a really major, you know, point of division within Athenian politics, what to do about the Spartans. 
In the end, uh, uh, Pericles, of course, uh, triumphs, but the result is the Peloponnesian War in which Athens is defeated and subjugated by Sparta. It is the worst, the most terrible war that had been known to the Greeks since that uh, in their history, and that's how Thucydides begins his account, that no previous conflict could, could be compared with this. So uh, the Athens had was an, uh, an imp- a growing imperial state that was out of control. Religious appeals to the Athenians about uh, uh, fell on deaf ears. When they decided they wanted to subjugate the island of Milos, which was a Dorian island, and therefore in alliance with Sparta, the Melians made moral and religious arguments about how they had to uh, maintain their traditional relationship. And the Athenian ambassadors just said, this is the real world. I mean, they talked like Hillary Clinton. This is the real world. You, these things don't mean anything. You, we have the power, and we will kill you if you don't comply with our wishes. And this was increasingly an, an, the incredible arrogance. And part of the arrogance was unchained because of the philosophical movement that was sweeping through the Greek world, which we, we call the, the, these people were called sophists. They were paid to teach you how to win an argument. And for sophists, the, one of the big things is the contrast between the, the, the nature, the laws of nature, which mean, for example, the laws of nature say that the weak must give way to the strong. And then there is the, the custom and law, what the Greeks called nomos. And the argument began to develop it, at its extreme form. The argument is peop, weak people invented these religious customs and superstitions to prevent the strong from ruling. Now, that's, uh, that's the, as I say, that's the extreme version taken, for example, by uh, Plato's uncle Critias uh, at, at this time. But the undermining of, of, of traditional piety and, resp- and respect for the divine order, this is, this is what is happening at, at this very time in Athens. Another, apparent, another <clears throat> part of the background because of the, uh, the circumstances of the war, the Spartans were invading the territory of Attica, where Athens is located, and they were burning farms and, and houses and crops. And so most of the farmers ended up moving into the city. So what happens in a city without a lot of uh, sewage and drainage and proper water supply, if you double the population, you're going to start having sickness and a plague. We don't know quite what it was. Some people think it was measles. There are a variety of theories. But a plague that was killing large percentage of the Athenian population broke out. Now, it is no accident that when the Oedipus begins... Of course, what to do about the plague? Because a plague is there in Thebes. Now, if you, if you have any doubt as to whether or not the, this play has significance for uh, contemporary Athens and its politics, and which, by the way, since we are doing everything to imitate Athenian policy by creating our own godless empire, the, 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 the parallelism begins to get very uncomfortable. Of course, they find out that the reason there is a plague is because a man has been murdered 
that is their former king, Laius, he was murdered, and the murderer is not been punished. You see, for the Greeks, um, uh, homicide, even accidental homicide, uh, is a stain. It's almost a physical blood stain, which they could perceive. This, they called it agos. And this agos... It's, it's like malaria or typhoid. It, 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 it causes uh, women to abort their babies. It causes crops not to grow. It causes, uh, it causes disease and death. So Athens, uh, oh, sorry, Thebes is suffering from this plague because of an unpunished crime. And until they find the killer, they cannot be released from the plague. And so the, it's in this first and greatest of all murder mysteries ever written, in which the detective in the end finds out that he himself is the killer. I mean, there is no, there, I mean, believe, believe me, Edgar Allan Poe, Agatha Christie, none of these people are write mystery on the level that this play is written. And so the object is to find out who did the crime and, therefore, and what has polluted the city. Any Athenian worth his salt is scratching his head at this point and wondering what uh, what they can uh, what the what the relevance is for him. What is Athens is under a plague. Athens has a wise guy political leader uh, who uh, we know makes fun of religion. So the the parallels are pretty uh, pretty close. Well, and we are talking about Christianity and classical culture, and you've done an um, excellent job of, of setting up the classical culture part of this episode today, Dr. Fleming. Now, I'm going to, to pose the Christian question to you. Uh, fundamentally, uh, at the heart of this play is this question of our free will and divine foreknowledge. Now, obviously, the Greeks had a different conception of the gods or a higher power than the Christians do. But how did the Greeks grapple with this issue of free will and foreknowledge, or let's say uh, the, the, what the gods know, or a daimon, if we want to use that word, versus the Christian conception? And, and what can we, how can we connect these fruitfully? Yes. <clears throat> the, it is, you know, it's often said that everything in Greek tragedy is determined by fate. You know, either the gods directly, or uh, or th or through some process of fate, that everything has been foreordained, and therefore uh, you can't hold people responsible for any any crime that has been uh, committed. The this is the, the, in other words, they would make the Greeks sort of like Cal you know ultra Calvinists. God has foreordained from the beginning of time, before time, that you should be damned, you in particular, and there's nothing that you, feeble human that you are, can do to change this. The reason that you have accepted Christ or become a Christian is that God wants you, and if you argue with this, you are arguing against divine providence. And they have some Catholic writers... Uh, and I've heard them lecture and talk to them about this. Some Catholic writers think that that is 
what uh, is here in this play or in Greek in general. And it's simply not true. The, uh, the, there's, a, there's, a, there's a mystery here. It's very similar to the Christian mystery. You know, all the most important things in Christianity are mysteries. How can, to take it on just the most obvious level, a wafer of bread is also the body of Christ. Jesus, all God, all man. Not, not, not a little bit of this and a little bit of that. I mean, every, everything is, is a mixture, is a, is a mystery, including the problem of, of divine foreknowledge and divine omnicompetence on the one hand and human freedom on the other. We can speculate all day long, and I'm happy to do so under other circumstances, about how this could possibly work. But, you know, in the Anglican service, there's a wonderful, uh, what is it, the Collect for for Grace, and it refers to God. He says, service, that is, is perfect freedom. That is, in, in acting as a servant of God, we enjoy Mar, our, our perfect freedom. Now, this is not really all that far from the Sophoclean position. He, we know that there is, of course, a, a, a curse, a doom, lying on the family of Labdicus, or more, more specifically, Laius. In this play, we don't know quite what it is or why it should be there. Uh, there are traditional stories. Sophocles may expect that we know them. But what we know is that Laius was not supposed to have a son. He did have a son, and this son was supposed to grow up and kill him. So on the one, and so he adopts, he, he wants the kid put to death. But, of course, if he does it himself, Laius will have blood guilt. He'll have this pollution on his hands. So he tries to avoid the, 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 this possibility by giving it to a shepherd to expose. Well, the shepherd, of course, gives it to his servant, gives it to another servant, and, and Oedipus ends up, although with crippled, a crippled foot, because they apparently put a, put a thong through it or whatever so he couldn't crawl away, uh, he ends up being adopted by the king of Corinth and, and is raised in ignorance of his background. He doesn't know until uh, he, he hears some joke about his being illegitimate or whatever, and he goes to the Delphic Oracle, and he finds out that uh, he is fated to marry his mother and kill his father. And so he resolves not to go back to Corinth. Of course, every decision he makes, uh, beginning with, with going to the Oracle, every decision he makes brings him closer to his doom. But you see, then the, 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 on the other hand, it is just as true to say that Oedipus, like his father, is an arrogant jerk. They meet, you know, where three roads meet, and uh, the old man has got an the old old King Laius has an entourage, and they tell the man on foot, "You've got to give way." Well, I mean, Laius is a king, and and Delphi is practically within his territory, and and you know he has his entourage, his herald, his driver. Of course, the young Oedipus should give way. It is absolutely his duty. No, he doesn't. You can't. You, basically, you can't tell me what to do. 
and or the driver lashes out at him. And, and Oedipus, you know, when he tells the story, you know, he, in retrospect, he said, yes, I'd, and he said, yes, I killed them. I killed them all. I mean, he's obviously, he's, he's, he, he is reenacting the, the greatest literary example of road rage. <laughs> but, you know, he obviously, there is something wrong. He, he, he trusts himself. He trusts his own judgment. He says, I am a child of fortune. Nobody made me. I made myself. He, he, he despises religion, despises tradition, despises even the kinship ties between himself and his brother-in-law, Creon, because he, he is the, the American naked individual. He makes his own decisions himself. So on the one hand, you can say it's all foreordained. On the other hand, you can say it's 100% brought on by Oedipus' arrogant and uh, lofty temperament. He is a he is a he is a noble man, but he is but he is self reliant to the point of being uh, being a sociopath. And as a result, he kill he doesn't kill them all because one witness is left. But he uh, he in his own mind he kills everybody. You know we we put this guy away for quite some years. Under Athenian law, it's interesting. I've done some research on this and. Because uh, the, the, the fact that the first blow is struck by the others does not justify Oedipus upping the ante. And he would certainly could be prosecuted uh, for homicide for what he did. Later on in Sophocles' last play, the Oedipus at Colonus, Oedipus says, I did what anybody would have done under the circumstances. I, I'm not a criminal. This, you, this is not... Yeah, he it's not to so the much that he's contradicting he the, the earlier position. These plays are independent. The plays right. are independent. Each one has to be looked at on its own grounds. Because I, I feel like that position he takes in that, in that play is much more of a self-defense. I think that he says, I would have been killed if I had not killed yeah. in a way that, you know, he forced my hand. But yeah, you know, sort of anger sort of runs in the family, I guess. The, yes, exactly. No, the the Laius and Oedipus coming across, coming up against each other. It's very, it's very amusing. It's like uh, the Johnny Cash song, "A Boy Named Sue." You know, <laughs> the, when the father and son finally meet, they have a knockdown, dragout barroom brawl, right. and uh, and you get you get this uh, feeling about uh, Laius and Oedipus as the uh, the apple did not far fall fall far from the tree in Oedipus' case. Yeah. And, and I think that this is a bit of a uh, challenge for me, Dr. Fleming, in my conception of the Greeks, you know, you think of them as this refined culture with, with, uh, with uh, the ability to restrain some of these passions and, and build these great things. And this, this sort of anger and violence, the, the idea that, that Oedipus would have killed all these people and that that was just sort of banished in the back of his memory that late, you know, finds out, oh, yes, the king was slaughtered and everyone else was there too is like oh you know that was just one of the murders i committed in my youth this idea that is just sort of back there i mean is that what is this what young greek boys did that just every now and then they they murdered a few people and, and then they, they forgot about it for years and then someone surprises them with this story that hey you know someone was someone slaughtered a bunch of people you know x number of years ago you know right before you got here you know who, who could that have been and, and oedipus has to search in his memory where was yeah. this road uh where where do you say this was um yes. and i think 
that's the bit I suppose is, is sort of a real suspension of disbelief for me throughout the whole play. I feel like the rest of it's really tied strongly together, but maybe it's, maybe I'm not understanding the way that the Greeks look at anger or the way that anger is coming out in this play, this, this level of violence and how, how quickly we see uh, him depart from this sort of nobility that he's assumed as the king of thieves to this, you know, as he attacks Creon verbally and threatens to torture Tiresias, that he just descends to this guy who murdered his dad. I mean, yes. you can see it on display in front of everybody. And so as the Athenians are watching this, what is, what is the Greek reflection on anger or maybe even the Athenian reaction on anger and how it's coming out in this play? Yeah, this is, uh, you know, I, I, I had uh, not thought of this aspect before. The, the simple answer is that um, civilized Greeks in the 6th and 5th century did not, or especially the 5th century, did not carry weapons. There was a kind of Wild West part of Greece where they did, and, uh, and uh, uh, Aristotle uh, talks about this, but um, they did not carry weapons. To strike a blow, like if you were having exchanging words with somebody, like in a, like a, like let's say we're in a uh, uh, an American bar room fifty sixty years ago, and if if you slap somebody or you take a swing, this was uh, there. This is a technically this is a crime, and the crime is hubris. Now, we're used to thinking about hubris as the arrogance of the tragic hero that brings on his downfall. But it's actually also a very a simple technical charge when you treat other people with contempt by reviling them. For example, uh, there's, uh, there's one famous legal case where uh, two, two, two families have been arguing, and one guy's walking down the street, and they hold him down, and they're, they're slapping him around. And, and one, of the, one of the other young men walks around crowing like a chicken to show his superiority over the fallen man. These are, these are serious crimes. I mean, uh, uh, Demosthenes prosecuted his guardian for having slapped him on, on the street. So it's the, the crime is hubris, and Oedipus, and so when, when Oedipus acts this way toward Creon and Tiresias and tells the story of this murder, my, my view, and I, I'm, um, I'm not saying this, this is the unanimous view of people who study Sophocles, my view is that the audience is horrified because the Greeks, uh, the Athenians, they did not have even very good protect, you know, self-defense laws because you weren't because if you're a member of a commonwealth, you're not supposed to use violence against your fellow citizens. So what everything Oedipus does shows his character, his unbridled uh, freedom that to, to do exactly as he pleases, verbal abuse, verbal threats. Threats, threats of torture, complete, uh, complete defiance of conventional Greek morality, as we know, he, is de he also defies conventional Greek religion. So it's a very strong mark against him, and the, which would have alienated the audience, I think, very strongly. That is why in the Oedipus at Colonus, where 
Oedipus is completely a sympathetic character, even though he's still got flare-ups of his anger, (laughs) they have to, Sophocles has to sort of rewrite the story and justify uh, the the killing of Laius, because these are, these are, these plays were written widely separated occasions, and even though Sophocles explores similar themes, he is not he is not bound to be consistent uh, because that would have interfered in his ability to to uh, to write uh, uh, you know a, a, a coherent play. Even by the way, when you wrote a trilogy on one theme, and we only have one of those extant, which is uh, Aeschylus Oresteia on the uh, murder of Agamemnon, and then the murder of Agamemnon's killers, and uh, finally the uh, the absolution of Orestes. Agamemnon, in the first play, is shown as as arrogant as the sacker of Troy, the abuser of women, the burner of churches, or temples, excuse me. But in the second play, he is simply the great man who has been murdered by his wife and her lover. And there's not a and now now that the murder has been committed, in other words, we've moved on, and we're looking at Agamemnon now simply for uh, his role in society, which is the greatest king in the Greek world. So Sophocles does not have to even... So even in a trilogy, you can, you can fudge in that direction. So here are the two plays, though. <clears throat> the two Oedipus plays have to, be taken, uh, have to be taken separately. But because if the Oedipus who kills his father and, and is outrageous to Tiresias and uh, Creon... That Oedipus cannot be the hero of the Oedipus at Colonus, with whom we have to have almost complete sympathy. Hmm. And we do see a bit of that old distemper uh, oh, yes. when, 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 his, uh, when his son comes yeah. um, to, to plead for his help, uh, and we see that uh, complete bile and anger come out. So he still yeah, got it. Another chip off uh-huh. the old block, by the way. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Um, so I think as as we've been discussing, and, and I think perhaps as I, I, I read the plays again, I thought that maybe the Greek and the Christian perception of, of that splitting the difference between divine foreknowledge and, and free will is maybe not that far apart. Because if we think in, in the New Testament, the examples that we have of the rich young man or of Judas, both choosing against uh, uh, opportunities given to them. Ju- Judas didn't have to do what he did. There was going to be someone who betrayed our Lord. It didn't have to be Judas, but he chose it the same way. The rich young man could have been an apostle, and he chose to do something else. He was given an invitation to do something by God himself. And so I think that we see here, and and again, I don't want to get into the other place too much because I want to save that for the next episode, but I I feel that even though there are the Greeks conception of, of the gods versus the the Christian conception of of God is is noticeably different. This idea that there is going to be some direct intervention uh, to to fix the situation um, is 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 this isn't held by the Greeks. The Greeks don't necessarily feel like okay, the gods are going to manifest themselves and, and fix this. It's the same thing. Uh, you know, uh, our Lord refused the signs and wonders that were demanded of him. Um, I think that perhaps there is a lot, this play gives us a, a lot closer um, view of, of that tension than might be supposed on a first reading. 
I think you're, you're, you're very right. You're very much onto something. And one of the uh, things that makes Sophocles compatible, I'm not saying identical, but compatible with the Christian worldview, is that Sophocles knows that in this world, we, uh, each person is supposed to do his duty and abide by the code of his society. Oedipus does not do that. And uh, Oedipus, of course, is uh, living in sin with his old mother, which is a sign of how disoriented. It's not his intention, it's not his fault, but it's a sign of how disoriented he is. He and Jocasta, his mother and wife, they think that they can make the rules up by themselves. They think that they have, by their practical wisdom, after all, Oedipus solved the riddle of the Sphinx, he delivered Thebes from this great peril, he is the only person who could have done it because he's smarter than everybody else. And he's, he's, uh, he, he's the problem solver. He's the can-do sort of person. And so when the, when the, when the things get closer and closer to, uh, to the explosion at the end, you know, Jocasta finally says, look, there were rumors about, you know, they told me I was going to marry my son or whatever. And all, all of that is uh, nonsense. Uh, she says, don't she said the, they, they they agree that the oracles of the gods are false and they and that religion is basically bunk and she as she says live at random live from you know live from day to day just take life as it comes and don't worry about this supernatural dimension and the laws they make and the rules the gods have made don't worry about that well End of scene, and what you then get is a choral passage, and it's a magnificent passage. And they, and, and the, the chorus says, once there was a man who said there were no gods, or the god, and he's talking about Greek philosophers like Protagoras, whether the gods exist or do not exist, he, he has a neutral position, concluding that man is the measure of all things, uh, of things that are and of things that are not. And, and Oedipus is clearly in this philosophical tradition. The chorus is pinning them there. And, and, and then they say, but if people are allowed to say such things, why should I be dancing? In other words, here is this chorus in a, at the Festival of Dionysus. They are in, a, in, in doing a religious song and dance number. And they say, if somebody, if people get, if our rulers, Oedipus and Jocasta, are going to be permitted, if they're going to get away with challenging the authority, not just of religion, but of the gods themselves, why should we be here? The whole point of this celebration is, is, is gone. We should just give up, and then we, like Jocasta, forget, forget religion, forget drama, forget everything that makes our life of value. Just live for today. Live from time to time. And it's that, that moment is a moment that when I first read it carefully in Greek, it, it, my hair stood on end because I realized that, that in this one line that the, that the chorus was putting the, the tragedy of Oedipus, that is the, the man who challenged religion and God, they're, they're putting it in context and they're demanding his punishment. And of course the punishment is, is soon to come. 
So uh, th- this is a this is a I think uh, in pagan literature there's hardly anything uh, uh, so 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 powerful and so close to I think our own understanding of how ritual integrates human life uh, with the uh, on a divine plane. Interestingly, we know that Sophocles was a religious person, and that when uh, the Athenians decided to make a major shrine to the healing god Asclepius, uh, and they were had to they had to house the cult statue of Asclepius somewhere before uh, they could build the temple, and uh, the person chosen was Sophocles, and so he was given the name Dexios, the receiver, the host. And he was revered as a hero, which is almost sort of like the equivalent of a saint. Not a god, but somebody that you pay attention to and has power in the afterworld, as, by the way, Oedipus will have in in the Oedipus at Colonus. Sophocles himself was given such a position because of his reverent reception of the healer god. And so we know that we are dealing with a man who is profoundly and deeply religious, not in the sense that he had a superstitious and credulous view of of Greek myth and that he swallowed all the silly stories that could be told, but that he knew that there were powers beyond the merely human and that these powers were there to teach us uh, how, how to live and how not to live. Our readers hopefully will will get into these plays uh, and read them, uh, at least the other two before our next episode, or maybe pause this podcast and, and go read the play uh, and then come back and, and listen again. Um, now, obviously, Dr. Fleming, my Greek is not advanced enough to read anything other than New Testament Koine Greek, um, so I have to rely on translations. And I, I read the Fagels translation. Do you have a, another that you prefer, or uh, is there a, a translation that you would recommend? Yeah. The, um, let me begin with a statement that no, no Greek tragedy has ever been well translated. Uh, okay. I, think, uh, I think it's impossible. And it's impossible for a lot of reasons. For one thing, you can the the, the language is often extremely uh, uh, difficult and rich and elusive. There's so many layers. The different metrical and rhythmical forms of the of the Greek choruses are uh, very complicated. It's more like uh, trying to. It, it's it's written the, the they're musically written on the level of a of a Bach fugue, not on the level of uh, an American folk song or pop song. Having said that, uh, there are, and so you have to go either with a literal translation that is clear or a poetic translation that may not be so clear, but, uh, but uh, at least gives you some feeling for the work as a work of literature. The two that I would uh, recommend for a, uh, for a plain version by somebody who has thought a lot about the text and had, was capable of independent judgment. And by the way, this is, <laughs> this is not Robert Fagels, believe me. Um, and that is uh, Sir Hugh Lloyd-Jones uh, did the Loeb edition, which is Greek on one side and uh, uh, English on the other. And Loeb's are often not very good. Tra- sometimes they're of uneven quality. 
Sir Hugh, whom I'm proud to say was a, was a friend of mine and actually uh, wrote a piece or two for Chronicles, an extremely fine man, uh, very eccentric. He was the Regis Professor of Greek at Oxford, and he saved the Regis professorships in, the Greek professorships in England from Thatcher when she wanted to destroy them. He was the only Regis professor who said, no, I am not going to retire. And so he's, he's, he saved this very distinguished uh, series of professorships. Anyway, Hugh has thought, thought many, many years and very deeply both about the text and the, and the meaning, and one doesn't have to always agree with him, but he always had the right to his opinion, to put it mildly. Um, for the poetry, I always liked, uh, what's their name? Uh, uh, um, it's, um, um, oh yeah, Dudley Fitz and uh, Robert Fitzgerald did, I think, all three plays, and um, I acted in the, uh, their version of the Antigone, and then when I was teaching at Miami of Ohio, the drama department wanted to put on the Antigone, and I got together with the director, and when I understood his intentions, it's, uh, the director was actually quite a nice guy named Don Rosenberg, and he, he, had, uh, he saw some things in Sophocles that most people who don't read Greek wouldn't have seen, and he wanted to bring these out, and I said, well, you're actually closer to the original Greek text. So I took the, uh, he was using Fitz and Fitzgerald as well, but I took it and rewrote in the, in the meter they were using and the rhythm and the poetic language, but I rewrote a few passages to be, make it closer to the Greek and therefore closer, actually, to the director's conception. It was a wonderful, wonderful production, which I was, you know, on the, on the set working with them so we could rewrite lines, sort of playing the author. Uh, so that's, that's a very good one. It's a, it's a cheap paperback, widely available. It may not be in print now, but you can get that probably for a dollar plus shipping from uh, Abe Books. Okay. Um, the last thing I want to ask you about today, Dr. Fleming, I, I, you know, I, I remember um, you, you sharing that uh, people would, and when you were in college, say you're a classics major, and then they say, well, it's all Greek to me, ha, ha, ha. Um, and just one of those silly things you have to put up with throughout a long career. Um, so my last question for today, perhaps it is one of these silly things, but I'm certain that you've been asked about it on more than one occasion. Um, the whole issue of the Oedipal complex as invented by, um, as invented by Freud, how, you know, how have you dealt with this in conversation? I'm sure people have brought it up to you many times. And, yeah. and what do you find is the best way to, to sort of couch this uh, or, to, or to answer it or, or, to, or should we just ignore it and just say, well, you know, that's Freud and, and what, do you, what, are you, what can you do? Well, the, uh, I, I usually uh, try, try to be polite, especially I have friends who are psychoanalysts. So you, you know, uh, one got extremely angry with me once when I uh, ridiculed uh, Freud. Uh, he is a, a kind of uh, hero uh, to them. And, you know, there are a few good aspects of Freud, uh, one of which is that he understood that Unlike most modern thinkers, Freud did realize that human nature was unvarying. In other words, that you couldn't just reinvent it today, which is what many schools of psychology uh, uh, think you can do. Uh, Freud, of course, took the idea of the Oedipus complex, that all men are you know, lusting after their mother. He took it from the passage in the Oedipus where uh, Jocasta says, well, you're not the f you know, many men dre have dreams of sleeping with their mother. 
Now, dreams are, you know, an odd thing, and one can have a, a variety of theories. I believe that many, many things that happen in dreams are sort of, uh, your hormones are saying one thing, and then, but you have a train of associations, and so that we, just all sorts of strange and not particularly significant things can happen in a dream. My answer is usually that Freud uh, was a very interesting creative literary intellectual. This is uh, Brutal Bettelheim's take on Freud, that there's many things that we can gain from reading, but they're irresponsible, they're unscientific, they're unprovable, and therefore reading him is like reading Lionel Trilling. You know, they're, they're, it's not as if you're, you're dealing with somebody who is thought academically or, or, or scientifically or medically. I mean, this is a man who, to cure anxiety, was slitting people's noses. <laughs> so uh, during a period of his uh, early practice. So we're, we're, we're dealing with a, a very eccentric literary intellectual. I, I don't think, and, and the whole idea that the beginning of civilization is when uh, sons rose up and killed their father and bedded their mother. I mean, this is, this is look, uh, the Greeks have much better myths than that. Mm. Well, uh, I think that might be a good way to end our episode today. Dr. Fleming, thanks for your time uh, talking about Sophocles. Obviously, for our next episode in this, uh, in this series, we'll discuss the final two plays uh, in this sequence, um, Oedipus at Colonus and Antigone. And um, we'll look forward to hearing more of your thoughts and uh, a greater expansion of this discussion. Wonderful. As always, thank you to our Gold and Charter members who help produce and make these podcasts possible. And a reminder that Christianity and Classical Culture is a production of the Funding Foundation. All rights are reserved, and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden.